From beyond the farthest reaches of our galaxy they come. Two brains pulsing with a strange energy. These space brains come to share their love of science fiction movies. Welcome to Space Brains, the show where we joy watch sci-fi movies and then talk about what was good and what was great. I'm sorry, and this is Mark. Hiya, it's episode 73 and we are talking about science fiction film The Shape of Water. Came out in 2017. In this episode, we'll reveal what we thought about the film, the ins and outs of narrative and film language, plus a nice deep dive and sorry, this film is full of water into a specific piece of science that the filmmakers are proposing. Oh gosh, now I've got to pronounce Guillermo del Toro's name. Guillermo. <laughs> Guillermo, I died. I looked this up on YouTube. I said it earlier, better on my video. Del Toro, I'm going to just call him Del Toro from here on in. Uh, and yeah, Vanessa cool. Taylor worked together on the script of this film. So check it out where you can before we go any further because warning warning turn back now if you haven't seen this film because we are going to go all through it and there will be spoilers so go watch it and then tune back in warning 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 <laughs> uh so basically a shape of water is based at a top secret research facility somewhere in the 1960s although they don't actually say it's the 60s and we have a lonely janitor who forms a unique relationship with an amphibious creature that is being held in captivity so what was your number one takeaway from the shape of water sorry my number one takeaway from the shape of water is that you can tell a lot about a man about when he washes his hands either before or after he does his business. Oh my goodness, that is such a good line in this film. Hey, like I loved that line. It is a confusing line because I listened to it and I thought, you're saying it like that's somehow significant, but I don't get it. Well, like, no, because he was saying you can tell a lot about a man if he washes his hand before or after, but not if it's both. And so to me, there's like... It's a nice symbolic element of who that character is, like him, the colonel. I think he was a colonel, wasn't he, or something? Um, no, no, he was, he was a... I can't remember. Oh, maybe he was. I thought yeah. the other guy was, but anyway. No, the other guy was General Hoyt, his boss. He had five, five stars. Count them. That means I can do whatever the damn hell I yeah. want. <laughs> anyway, to me, it was telling you a lot about his, you know, level of control as a, you know, in his role... But I, I, when I first saw this film, that line stuck with me. Even like days after, I'm like, yeah, do I wash, should I wash my hands before or after or both? What does it really, like, it's just such a powerful line. Now, it, it reminds me there was a, it's basically a, is it a joke? Maybe it's a joke I, I heard, which is to say that uh, this, this Frenchman and a Spanishman are talking and the, you know, the French, the Frenchman basically indicates that he washes his hands before mm. he touches himself to go to the toilet because, <laughs> you know, some sort of respect ritual, you know, there's a, um, 
you know, a, a cleansing before going to the toilet because the old uh, Johnson there is important. Mm. And and then also he, he he goes to the toilet with his hands on his hips, this guy. Uh, was his name Strickland? Yeah. <laughs> and it's just, it's it's such a, what you might call it, uh, an alpha male move, you know, like yeah. I'm going to aggressively go to the toilet without touching. Yeah. And I'm only going to wash my hands before I go. Yeah. And all of these things are him thinking he's somehow, uh, I don't know, imprinting some level of superiority. But you can tell from the, the cleaning women's reactions that they're, they're just more confused as to why he would be saying and doing these things. <laughs> yeah, I mean, it's all about him as a character being in control, in power, uh, you know, and even weeing in front of them. Uh, you know, this film does have a lot of, you know, being the 60s, there's a lot of differences maybe to our society today. But, I mean, it's extremely inappropriate that he went in front of them and he was very much exerting his authority, wasn't he? And uh, yes. But then not only that, in saying, oh, you know, it, it's all, you'd tell a lot about a man if he washes his hands before or after, but not both. You know, both means he's, you know, he's not quite right, you know. Uh, he's yes, got to make a decision. <laughs> It's a great line. I loved that line. When I first saw this movie, it really stuck with me. Okay, well, it was my number one takeaway. So what was this movie? Was it a what, hope, warning, or an experiment? To me, it's a hope because really, no matter what human or humanity throw at each other, and whether that's sexism, racism, homophobia, uh, or even love, between different people, uh, humanity kind of per perseveres. So we were just talking about Strickland. He's the powerful authority. I mean, he's got the whole US government behind him, we presume. Like you said, you just said that General Holt says, these five stars, I mean, I can do whatever the hell I want. You know, like these guys are the guys in power. Uh, that toilet scene, he's exerting his power over the, the protagonist who's just a cleaner. You know, she's a... She's a woman, she's a cleaner, she's got no authority in this organisation and yet she is the one that understands the creature more than anyone and evades them by pulling the creature out of their facility and getting him back into the wild. Like, it shows you what the little person can do, you know, the underdog. And so to me, I think it is a story of hope because the hopelessness is our society dominating each other. And this film has some really subtle, you know, mo uh, that uh, really subtle, what's it, really subtle attitudes, you know, those, those attitudes of the man versus the woman, uh, you know, gay people being mistreated, um, the in this case African Americans versus white uh, white Americans, and then also just the traditional male versus female. Um, you know that that Strickland. I mean, he's a bad guy, but he's a he's authoritative to everyone, including his wife, isn't he? You know, so it's it's all about sort of like domination from society, but yet the cleaning lady is the one that is the winner at the end of the day, and it's a, so it's a great underdog story, and to me that just means hope. That and the Cadillac salesman, <laughs> who totally, totally dominates Strickland. Yes, <laughs> That's, I, I found that that scene to be 
revealing as well about Strickland and his insecurity. Well, the fact that he's because this this movie is a bit about incomplete people. Yeah. So people who cannot find that part of themselves that they need in society. You know, the the artist can't find a partner. Uh, you know, a, a presumably a gay partner. Yeah. Uh, although, I guess it's not strictly spoken, but you know, we're smart enough, I think. Yeah. And oh, Eliza, she's. It's not even that she's missing her voice. Like, that doesn't seem to bother her. But rather, she's sort of, you know, what is she doing? She's a essentially a, a spinster living with a gay artist. Yeah. Like, and her, her day is just this sort of routine. And she's well, clearly un, unfulfilled. And then we've got Strickland, who likewise, he's missing something. It yeah. looks like he has all his power in society, but really he's got this anxiety and insecurity which is taken advantage of by the salesman he goes in his wife says you deserve a cadillac right and that's like triggers him because a cadillac is a big car it's a man's car and like so he's actually in, being controlled by this thing mm. and he turns up and then the salesman talks him into buying the green one uh teal sorry even though at first he's like yeah i don't want a green like look at that that's you know a weak color but the salesman says, no, it's not. It's, it's a powerful color. And oh, oh, yeah, it is. It's a powerful color. I deserve that. Yeah, that, that, he's missing something as well, looking for, for what he can get. So it's, um, yeah, it's, it's a sort of story. And, and even the Russian spy, he's, you know, he's craving this knowledge and um, validation as a scientist, not just as a, a disposable resource in, in, in the spy world. So there's this three sort of or, or so units walking around and at least at least one of them has the the uh you know gets completed which I guess would be the hope. Yeah, yeah. Well, you know, it's funny, isn't it? Because even Strickland he kind of keeps saying you know, like, it's funny his motivation in this film, I found, because, and it, and it makes him so rich because he says to us he dug this amphibian creature out of the Amazon and brought it all the way back, you know, and then so he kind of has a bit of power. But then very early in the film, he then loses those two fingers. So he's sort of like, he loses, doesn't he? He loses out. And then when, then we see him with his family and it's like, He's got the happy little perfect family. In fact, did you notice there's like a correlation between his family and then the family that the artist draws? Like they're the they're the ideal yes. American family, right? Like the two kids, the beautiful wife, the house, the car, everything. And they even she even brings out Jello, which is what they're painting. Yeah, you yeah know, the like green one. Yeah. <laughs> yes, and I like but, that. but then the thing is, he's but then he keeps also saying that he wants to get the hell out of Baltimore and kind of go to a big city. So it's like, he's not content, you know, like, and it's, no, it, I said, he's, he's missing his, his soul. He, he hasn't, he, he thinks that he should be more than he is. Yeah. He doesn't see what he does have. And that look, and that's a tip for anyone out there. This is a good villain. This is a great villain because he's got problems in his life, right? Like he's got problems. So not only is he 
in the story to be the bad guy, you know, the villain to our protagonist, but he's actually got his own freaking problems. It's so good when a villain is like this, you know, like it makes it so much more substantial, doesn't it? Yeah, you don't you don't really feel uh, sympathy for him. No, you, you don't at empathy. all. You know, you can feel that his villainy is born from a a frustration which is being um, confronted or, or not confronted, as the case may be, through bad choices. That's right. Like it's not that you go, oh, I can understand why he's doing this, and oh, poor guy. It's more like oh, I can understand why he's doing this. It's because he's just he's screwed up. You know, he he keeps doing the wrong thing, mm. thinking that he's doing the right thing. That's right. And that's what makes him the villain. There is is just. Um, yeah, you know that he's not going to learn yeah. uh, a better way. He's going to try uh, to be worse, in <laughs> fact, because he thinks that that's his ideal place to move to is not one of heroism, it's towards villainy. That's right, yeah, uh, yeah. And that's quite good. So this is, not, is, this is not the first time you've seen this film. No, I'd only how seen did it. How you see it the first time and how did you watch it this time? Uh, I saw it about a year ago and I really liked it and so I knew that we have, we'd have to do it one day on Space Brains um, and I didn't really have a lot of context when I first watched it apart from Del Toro who I've seen Pan's Labyrinth uh, which is a terrific film uh, but I didn't realise even when I watched this that this was an Oscar winning sort of film or you know how good it was going to be but it, yeah to me it's just like a when I first sat there and watched this film watched it on my own the first time and I it just blew me away from a film point of view there's so many good elements there's these motives there's a great like we're just saying bad guy there's a really compelling good guy um the crux of the story or the setup of the story is not brand new you could look at this film and it's the same sort of story as E.T. like it really is um, there's a creature that then befriends the main character and in befriending the main character, there's a healing that goes on for the main character. And, and that's basically what happens in this. And there's an authority, bad character, you know, the, the sergeant, the colonel, whatever Strickland bloody is. Um, and there's the a system as well built around them. So the, the actual crux of this is nothing brand new. But I just thought that Del Toro and Vanessa Taylor had really put together a great concept here of this amphibian man and the fact that she falls in love and, and they sort of take it to a whole other level that, you know, it's someone in love with this creature. And, and that's also, you were saying before, she she's pretty content in her life, but what she is missing, and there is that scene with the neighbour, she says the amphibian man sees her the way she sees herself. Like, so whereas humans kind of look at her and she's a janitor and she can't speak, this creature doesn't notice that. And so that's what makes her kind of then feel, you know, full. Um, so I think that that's her journey and that's what he gives to her. And, and then at the end of the film, the fact that he gives her gills, you know, like that's a kind of a really cool, smooth narrative ending to this whole setup. I also thought the amphibian man's kind of like a, and Del Toro says this as well, if you go online and, and have a look at, you know, the countless interviews and stuff that are out there about this film. But he also does say, 
you know, he was very inspired from the creature from the Black Lagoon. And in fact, he pitched this film way back in about 2010 or something. The the concept of this film, not so much the whole, the way it turned out, but the, the, the concept he originally had was, what if we did the creature from the Black Lagoon, but we looked at it from the point of view of the creature? <laughs> so not the human's point of view. And of course, no one would fund him for that idea. Um, Is that same but different? Yeah, yeah, same but different, right? Like, that's exactly right. So uh, this was my, then this time it was my second viewing. My wife watched it with me. It, this was a film that when I watched it, I'm like, ah, oh, my wife would like this, even though it's got some pretty graphic moments. You know, there's a bit of disturbing elements in it. You know, with Strickland, he does do just some disturbing things. I was like, oh, no, she will like this because it does remind me of E.T., this film. Like, I think it's got a bit of a similar vibe. Uh, I know Del Toro wasn't going for that. That wasn't his inspiration, but... I can see some similarities going on there, and yeah. there's some other films that are like that. Even something like How to Train a How to Train Your Dragon, uh, with Toothless, is like this. It's the same sort of story arc, um, but you know, here again, same but different. And so this time round, I was watching it a bit closer. I really picked up on the motives. I really picked up on the homage to those old sort of films. I also thought on the second viewing. I noticed the deeper avoidance and the subtleness of things like homophobia, racism, sexism that is embedded in this film. Uh, Del Toro is an immigrant as well to America and you can sort of see that I think there's a bit of that like discrimination in the film, but it's not screaming at us, oh, discrimination is bad. It's just, it's subtle. It's there, right? Like it's embedded in the story. Yeah. Yeah. So did, I really did you see enjoyed. some of the other other themes in there, like the um, the constant reference to the future. The yes. future is here. Yeah, this is the future. We're going to the future. The um, the the Jello commercial he was painting was the future is here. Yeah, and there's there's it was mentioned numerous times. The Cadillac was, again. I, yeah, um, yeah. And I was, I was trying to sort of pick up what I'm getting at really there. That um, is is. Yeah, what that was sort of meaning. Well, I think the thing is they were, you know, the military as well. They, they, them and the Russians, right? They were like, this creature might help us send a man to space. And so again, it's the future, isn't it? And then it's like society will be better in the future with future developments. Oh, the latest car will will make you feel, you know, it's got all the, you know, when that salesman says all the Cadillac stuff, it's all about the latest and the greatest and it's going to make you feel like the man you should be all the successful businessmen have it you know the and then he wants to strickland wants to get to bolt get out of baltimore and go to a big city it's again it's future whereas you take our main character lissa like she was pretty happy in and in her environment wasn't she you know she was she was pretty happy like she didn't really have a major issue being a janitor and as we when we'll get into in a minute like the setup of this film she wakes up she has a bath she masturbates she cooks her eggs (laughs) like she goes to work like she's pretty happy isn't she like even on the bus ride i don't know i'd I'd argue that's not so much happy as she's got she's got a comfortable routine maybe yeah well maybe i think there's there is a certain point there where you you realize that you know she's she and you know the the artist i can't remember his name to tell you the truth Poor guy. Uh, they, <laughs> Giles, they Giles. share a, a story arc in there. There's something not quite 
progressing with yeah, their life. That's true. Yeah, they're, that's true. They're sort of in a, in a holding pattern. They're, they're they're a bit stale. Yeah. They sit there every night and watch musicals together and do a bit of tap dancing. Yeah, and, and I mean he yeah he's, he keeps working on this stupid jelly art. Yeah, well he's stuck over, in the future over and over. He's stuck in the future as well, isn't he? Because he is trying to do that art and get back his old job or something. And even that, like it's, you know, the boss says the client wants photos. The future is photos. You know what I mean? Like it's, and so he's, and he's trying to, he's an artist and he's like, no, they don't want, look how good my art is. And the boss is like, it's great art, but they kind of want photos, you know, like the future is photos. So even he is trying to get to the future and not realizing that the present is pretty good. Um, yeah, but, but I do agree with you. It is a bit of a holding pattern. Yeah. So how did the movie make you feel? Sorry. Uh, it made me feel calm. Last episode was don't look up, which made me feel quite anxious. Yes. This, this film had a, a calm fairy tale feel to it. It did. The coloration of it, the introduction of the, um, uh, the fish man, the symbology of the use of the pattern of three yep. occurring, like these um, these three characters um, in three situations, that sort of thing. Yeah. And I do know that Guillermo is a big fairy tale, um, real world meets mysticism, yeah, you know, mystical world sort of guy. I mean, he has he's done so. We we know Pan's Labyrinth, we know this one, but he also wrote the screenplay for The Hobbit. And Pacific Rim, yeah, and uh, you know the Hellboys, various bits and pieces, Mimic. If you remember that one, that's yep. back in '97 by the Insects. But yeah, he's done a lot of this on the Strain TV series. Which do yourself a favor and watch that. It's, yeah, um, it's a complete series. So like, as in a complete story arc from first all the way through the end. So it's not one of these ones that's just kind of continues on forever just constantly making up new things it's actually a a complete story which yeah. is great and you, and you you hit a good note there with del toro it's like the world is quirky and mythical but then based in some sort of reality and quite often he i haven't seen heaps of his stuff but if you do think about pan's labyrinth it's it's the same in this film that there's that subtle reference to a moment in time so in here it's like the 60s so there's like revolutions of of gender and um, you know uh, race and and sexuality, and in um, Shape of Water, there, there's references of that, but only in the minor. It's not blasted in our face. And in Pan's Labyrinth, without spoiling it, it's the same sort of thing. Like the girl is in wartime, and it's very much you know symbolic of something like World War Two. But then we've got this like family dynamic going on that's also abusive, etc. In Pan's Labyrinth, so he kind of always does combine these quirky, mythical fantasy worlds, but still embeds the reality of like historical society into them, doesn't he? Yeah, but what I did did find because of that sort of uh, fairy tale fantasy sort of feel to it. The anxiety and the the drama wasn't from um, these sort of close scenes. Like the escape of the fishman is relatively smooth. Yeah, and it happens before the midpoint of the. You know, like it, you would have thought that would be sort of Act Three. Yeah, where they free Willy. You know, as it were. 
Um, yeah. But yeah, and and so watching it was yeah, it was nice and soothing, and it was it had a distinct romantic feel, I suppose, in yep. that you're more interested to see uh, if these characters find happiness than you are to see if they, you know, kill the bad guy and get the girl or the boy in this case. Yeah. Yeah, definitely, definitely. Did you have a favourite scene? Favourite scene? I really liked the scene where she fills up the bathroom with water <laughs> and they're like, they're sort of dancing in the water like it's a... It's a reflection of the opening image, which yeah. uh, has the camera sort of going through an apartment building filled with water. Foreshadowing. And, yeah, so it's, and it's, it's this nice um, transition from being her world, where he's a part of it, uh, with the bathtub, into being like uh, transferring or transforming her world into his, into their world. Yeah. Which, again, using that water metaphor of crossing over, you know, maybe life and death or, or discovery of new life, if you will. It's, yeah, it, it had this very nice, um, yeah, if you're talking about a romance movie, this, this was like what I thought was one of the most romantic scenes, mm. was that she would risk her own, you know, uh, environment in order to be to make it more comfortable, it's like the uh, the ball scene from Beauty and the Beast. Yeah, without the implied violence, <laughs> <laughs> which is kind of yeah. Beauty and the Beast is it's a bit problematic in places, really, if you look at it. But, but yeah, that, that was that was my favorite scene, and it it had just this this perfect um, that. Uh, filter they had on the camera like that sort of film grain mm. and the coloration of those greeny colors and the bluey colors coming yeah. through uh, and his uh, glowing skin yeah. and yeah they, they sort of we're just having a nice little cuddle and a little dance it was very nice yeah it was, it was a beautiful scene that one and you know perfectly timed for the narrative because yeah, you know, like she'd brought him back to uh, her place. They were progressing, but then, you know, for him, you know, he's supposed to be in the ocean or the Amazon River. You know, he needs space, doesn't he? And the bath is only so big. So, yeah, to kind of allow him a much bigger space when the relationship is also interconnecting, it's a, it's a beautiful scene. Yeah. And how about yourself? Was there anything in particular the science fiction about this film that you liked? Well, to me, not so much that they delved into, you know, heavy science in this film. This is not a film where they go heavy into the science. They made a lot of connections to, you know, go into space. You know, that was the point of why they would want to, you know, understand this creature. And, and I think that was a fair enough parallel. But what I liked was probably the connection to old sci-fi, which again, as I said, Del Toro sort of says the creature from the Black Lagoon. Um, and, there, and there's some other references as well that people say online that if you go watch this film, see what you think, let us know. Did, did you kind of connect to other stories? Um, but I, I, I like that because there was the impression that we were almost, you know, this, you know, if you remember when we did Metropolis and you've got the kind of crazy scientists in this one, it's the crazy military, isn't it? And the scientist is actually a bit more down to earth. You know, there's that line in this film where Strickland says, oh, the scientists fall in love with their subject matters. And, I mean, he was wrong because 
the scientist wasn't in love with him. <laughs> uh, the janitor was. The scientist was, of course, a double agent or whatever you want to call it and um, was wanting to take the creature back to Russian soil, wasn't he? Um, but he wanted to be more protective, you know, and so to me it just reminded me a lot of those old, you know, 50s, 60s sci-fi films and where you kind of got the scientist and you got the creature in the lab and it's all pretty primal, isn't it? It's all it's all primitive you know where you and i have looked at a whole bunch of films uh with space brains and we've seen some modern science some futuristic science uh even if you go back to you know the beyond um or you know what was the canar reeves one where he brought his family back to life um uh, was that replicas, uh, replicas replicas you know so a lot of that's like the scientists but it's the futuristic scientists isn't it whereas it's cool to sort of see these old scientists and the military being involved. And um, yeah, there's that movie, you know, the day the earth stood still and uh, you know, those kind of old, even the blob where the military seemed to get involved. They seem to almost be at blame here, don't they, with the science. So that was the sci-fi highlight of this film. Beautiful. I, I quite liked the linkage into uh, real world scientific endeavors at the time. Yeah. At the moment, I'm listening to a podcast about MK Ultra, which was um, sort of to do with the CIA coming out of World War II or the OSS, which is the, I can't remember what OSS stands for, but it became the CIA. Okay. The, the Central Intelligence came out of the um, some secret service uh, for World War II. Yeah. And they were looking at all manner of, um, you know, they, they'd taken... Uh, Nazi scientists and brought them over to the United States yeah, yeah. to to do, for example, rocketry, which helped them get to the moon, but also to do any number of experiments or to get information about the experiments that the Nazis conducted, you know, you know quite cruelly on living people. Mm. Um, and this movie, it's in that same sort of era where, you know, the Cold War is very cold i suppose you'd say <laughs> russians are a real danger um but at the same time they're sort of pushing these boundaries of science and they're not being particularly um concerned with morality or ethics yeah it's kind of we have an unlimited budget and unlimited scope yeah you know, the, the five-star general was just of the opinion that uh this was a project he had and, and he could basically do whatever he wanted he 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 made that quite clear and so I quite like that, as I said, that reminiscent of the old science fiction. I think we, I think we miss out a lot in science fiction, uh, where we could have more of these fifties or sixties based science fiction, where there was a lot of pushing boundaries. Uh, you know, Hitler sort of pushed a lot of boundaries during World War Two with building new weapons and advancing strange social ideas. But coming out of that, of course, came the nuclear bomb and this optimism about man's capability to uh, progress technology, uh, which we've we've sort of lost a bit now. It's now it's more like our ability to sell more advertising. Yeah, that's right. I suppose you know, like it's it's almost we've lost, and even even the the current space race amongst the billionaires is kind of. It's about who's going to work the first space hotel or who's going to mine the first space asteroid to get, you know, there's, there's not that human element to it where it's, you know, we're torturing all of these people to better humanity 
Instead, it's like we're making workers urinate into bottles so that I can be the first billionaire to float in space for 20 minutes. <laughs> you know, it just kind of it loses its romantic power. It does. You know, that um, human optimism, even though it's quite a dark period in uh, history, you know, with nuclear war being at the you know, brink. You know, we had these the Cuban missile disaster, um, not disaster, crisis, and a, and a few other sort of scenarios that could have ended the world. But there's still kind of this idea that science and technology is going to save us. It's it's going to make humanity, you know, the titans of the solar system. Definitely. Um, so that's that's what I liked about the science fiction part of this this film. Yeah, that's cool. That's a cool take. I hadn't looked at it. I hadn't thought of it in that correlation. But you're you're exactly right. Yeah, I mean now it's now it is all about more. It's just, now it's just about the money. I think that's the difference from my point of view. Whereas that you're exactly right. That was more about a even in this film, it's America versus Russia. And then because Strickland is the American, he's the bad guy. To make him more the bad guy, the Russian scientist wants to save the amphibian man right whereas so it mm. makes strickland more of a bad guy like it really does doesn't it you know even the russians wanted to save him and then when they couldn't save him the doctor's boss you know the other i don't i don't know their names but then they like well we just don't want them to have the research so kill the amphibian man you know um but it made the doctor hofstadler uh it made him more of a good guy didn't it because he didn't do that he he helped out yeah, he, he he murdered some poor guard doing his job. Yeah, that bit's glossed over. <laughs> it's, it's always a little bit rough on guards in movies. Guards yeah. are often, uh, you know, they're the extension arm of the bad guys. But really, that that guy was just doing his job. He's meant yeah. to be checking IDs. And he seemed and to he do a good job. It's a bit dodgy. <laughs> and so he's going, well, hold on, what's going on here? You know, you're pulling a scam. That's right, that's right. And I mean, it was glossed over. He, he gets the stab of the needle, and then there's no re more reference of him. <laughs> he's just he's no. just lost. Well, well, that's the Austin Powers joke. It is. I was just you know, thinking the same thing. Yeah. Where the the henchman family is sitting there, wondering when henchman daddy was going to come home yeah. to his henchman children. Yeah. Yeah. And the bachelor so, party. <laughs> just hold on a second. Let's move on to talk about the old chestnut, at the film festival, because we're we're progressing with that one there. Yep. Uh, I think it's safe to say that we have secured some funding for that, which is nice because we have invoiced for that. We have. So, so we've gotten so some that means that funding from the local council, which is great, the city of Mandra. Go Mandra. Go Mandra, and, they're supporting it. And that also means then that this, this film festival is going to be uh, really quite excellent, I think. Yeah, it's going I'm to be excited. Workshops, there's going to be, you know... Um, podcasting brilliance there's going to be an after party there's going to be uh, an awards and screening um it's going to all happen here in may may 21 keep an eye out for that yeah it's going to be all official we're going to have awards we're going to have a red carpet ceremony we're going to be picking films are coming in aren't they they were still getting people submitting uh which is great we've got a whole bunch of films that you and i need to sit down and and now, I don't know, we're going to have to also figure out because I'm excited just to sit down and watch all those films. I think we're going to need 
even maybe after the film festival to do a special on all of those films or something. Uh, <laughs> I don't know. I, I We're going to have so. to come up with something from it because, you know, even if they won't all be able to be selected, but I just have a gut feeling that a lot of them are going to be great little films and they're going to be worthy of talking about. And so I just, I just think that even after the festival, we, we should be probably talking to some of those filmmakers and having chats. So if you're a regular to the podcast, get excited because at some point we're going to have to have some super special space brains where we talk about all those little films, I think. Hey, if we're, and if we're going sort of a bit video after this, we, we might even have uh, some, you know, some video input, some little, what do you call it, like a super cut of montage of, of all the amazing stuff. Definitely. It's going to be a lot to talk about. And it, it it'd be is. good to be able to show people some of the talent and brilliance that people are submitting. Yeah, and no, I think that we'll have to come up with some different ways of showing. So the podcasts, maybe some little videos, uh, maybe some live streaming online or something. I don't know, whilst we watch them. <laughs> I don't know. So if you're out there and you're listening and you're interested in any of those options, maybe send us an email or a message and let us know what you think. Do you, Should we be streaming them or, or putting them online and having a talk with the filmmakers and finding out more about them. And yeah, just let us know where we should go with it. So that means we should get into the plot of The Shape of Water. So this film, uh, as we talked about before, Del Toro and Vanessa Taylor wrote it. Um, and Del Toro was the director behind this Um Sally Hawkins plays the key main protagonist, Alyssa Esperato, and Michael Shannon plays that Richard Strickland, who we've mentioned a lot about. Richard Jenkins, this name you might not ring a bell, but he's been in truckloads of films over time. He plays the neighbour, Giles. Octavia Giles. Spencer, um, she's been a superstar over these last three or four years um, in a whole bunch of different films. Uh, she plays Zelda, the other cleaner woman that sort of reluctantly doesn't help her and then she does help her. Michael Stilbarg plays that Dr. Robert Hofston, the double agent, whatever you want to call him. And Doug Jones, good old Dougie, plays Amphibian Man. Uh, this was filmed in the US and Mexico. Um, I mentioned before that Del Toro pitched this idea a little bit, didn't really take off. A couple of years later, he was pitching this idea again um, for a amphibian man that falls in love <laughs> with a janitor. And um, he ended up on Fox Searchlights, who are notorious for funding, you know, they're, they're sort of an independent arm. I mean, the budget is still a lot bigger than a lot of independent films, but um, they're an independent arm of Fox Studios, but they do specialise a lot more in these sorts of films go check them out. There is a whole bunch of great films that they have funded over the years. Um, the budgets do tend to be under 20 mil. And a little tidbit for this was Del Toro was considering having this whole film in black and white. And Fox said back to him, okay, if you do it in black and white, we'll give you 17 million. If you do it in color, we'll give you 20 million. Um, so he kind of leaned more into getting a little bit more money to make the film go a little bit further. Um, and so he went that way. And I think he went the right option. Again, they weren't expecting it to do very well, but it really blew the socks off worldwide. I think it was around 60 mil in the US and eventually made 195 million uh, worldwide. So 
that is a massive profit uptake. You don't get that on many films, do you, Sorry. No, and it, it's still one of these funny things. In, in terms of scale, there are more recent movies that have had budgets bigger than its gross worldwide yeah. take. It's, um, it's a bit unfortunate, I think, that, yeah, we, we sort of seem to value good cinema less. I guess it's, I guess it's just a numbers game, isn't it? If it you is. can pull in all the 14-year-olds yeah. uh, on you know, school holidays and because you know, all the parents go, yeah, just go to the bloody cinema, get out of my house. Yeah. <laughs> uh, you can, you're going to blow it up. And so you have a, a sci-fi romance fantasy like this and, yeah, you, you're not going to get anywhere near that number of people in there. No. But still... Ten times, ten times your budget. You're gonna be happy. Yeah, everyone. Oscars. I think everyone would be happy with that result. That that funds a lot more films going into the future. Um, and so, interesting enough, that's your kind of public response. So, a really good response that way from people bums on seats. But it also got massive uh, creative and critical positive response, including winning four Oscars. It was Del Toro's fourth time to be nominated and he won for this film um, and this film in particular won so he won the best directing it won the best motion picture for the year uh, best achievement in music as well written for a motion picture the original score and also best achievement in production design so I mean I think those last couple of things you would just it'd be a bit of a no-brainer to not give it to this film because the eclectic version of this world that they created, you know, the way that research lab was, you know, think about the colouring, think about the costumes, think about how the monster was chained up. He was also put in front of that screen. Think about the little car they drove around the research laboratory. Think about the bus. You know, I don't know if you even noticed, oh, sorry, the, when she first hops on the bus, there's a guy with a birthday cake and balloons. I mean, that is the production design. That's the production designer's job and is to build that a world. a slice missing from the birthday cake. Yeah, you know, and... Um, her apartment and the things that were in her apartment, there was so many, and I'll come to it, there's so many water motifs, you know, obvious and non-obvious. And so, yeah, to me, the production design, this is brilliant production design. Like there's, it just, this was part of like, when I first watched it, I just went, wow, like this is the way film, it's, it's not just a film, it's a painting, you know, like everything is been painted you know <laughs> um so it's it's brilliant i think it does lend itself when you do set a film you know in the past like in the 60s or the 50s or the, even if you said now the 90s it does give production design a very clear look um but well, i think the here they nail it. it could easily just take a literally a, a photo or a home video and see what people had in their homes yes because one of the problems you get with production design i think and sets is you say, okay, this is going to be in someone's apartment. So you just kind of, you know, here's the couch and here's the coffee table and people sit there and, you know, you try to put a couple of bits and pieces around, but sometimes it's a bit sparse. It, it looks like a set. Yeah. And, and that's because when you have a look at, you know, even just the room I'm sitting at the moment, you know, I've got a couple of just sort of really odd things. I've got like a, an empty can of drink that I was drinking earlier this evening and, and uh, I've got like a little ball of string that I play with and there's just kind of seemingly random elements which you'd never in a million years would you think to put that into a set you go okay this is a guy's office 
so there's his computer. Uh, he does podcasting, so here's a microphone. But then they're probably going to miss out on the, the multiple sets of headphones I've got and the, um, you know, the phantom power units I've got and the fact that I don't use a normal um, you know, amp system. I use this Line 6 sound source Yeah, well, see, that, tower, to, that would know, like tell... All of that sort of thing. That would tell the story that you're serious about your podcasting. <laughs> you know, if you, if you had... That's the thing. A production designer can decide, right? Should, should Surrey have eight pairs of headphones? So he's like... He collects headphones because he's so into listening, trying to figure out which headphones are the best sound. Or does he have one that it's like... That's his favourite one, and it's kind of been gaffer taped, and he's been it's put stickers on it, and you know, and it's been through travelling airports, and and it's kind of broken an ear off, but he's repaired it, you know. But he just has to keep using that awesome set of headphones that relates to his childhood somehow, you know. So there's always a story that could be told there, and that's the job of the production designer, you know, to fill in and, those and gaps. I think that is, as you said, what what puts this movie in the Oscar category for that is everything like in Giles' apartment, there's all those bits and pieces. It looked just like his character. You would yeah. expect him to be sitting there. Yeah, like definitely. A, a once, probably once successful and, you know, very active artist because you see all of those bits and pieces, there's boxes and of things and there's paintings about the place. And But then he's left there kind of with just his easel and, and the same picture that he's working on constantly. Yeah, yeah, definitely, definitely. So, anyway, kudos to the film. It also won a whole bunch of other really esteemed awards around the world, not just Oscars, but I guess when we talk about film, Oscars tends to be there, and including BAFTA, won a couple of BAFTAs as well, um, but in a whole bunch of other film festivals and things like this. So, massive success critically and also bums on seats. So, yeah, kudos to everyone involved in making the film and they got rewarded. So we want to um, break down into some of the key bits of narrative that we like to do. And these come from all good story and script writing teachers. Been around for hundreds of years, some of these, and some of the last 20 years. We're talking about people like Campbell, Schneider, McKee and Field, just to name a few. Um, but there's also things like The Hero's Journey, if you have ever read, read that. Um, and all of this leads into the three-act structure overall, which then can be broken down into what we call specific moments or beats. So let's have a look at the style of this film because it has a very distinct uh, visual effect. Yeah, so I, I wanted to what, pick on that? I wanted to pick on some of that just to describe it. It's a painting, this film, so let's paint a picture, so to speak. Um, be expected, you know, to be delighted for your eyeballs watching this film. Um, the colour is saturated, there's extreme, which means there's extremities of those particular colour schemes are pushed out and it's very vibrant in its colour. Reminded me of a film called Amelie, if you're a filmmaker, a German sort of film. Um, interesting enough online, I did not know this, but yeah, the filmmaker of that actually claimed Del Torre kind of copied him a bit too much, uh, but I'll leave that to each and everyone's own opinion. But yeah, we basically got this real Fuji film saturated colour. Um, even though it's it, the film is the 1960s and they play off that, so the costumes, the cars, we said the Cadillac, you know, it's a 60s Cadillac. Cadillac. Um, and that also revolves into moments of the story as well. Uh, there's this thing that we said before as well where the 
themes of the film are explored with juxtaposition to famous moments in time. So in American history, being that we are set in America, um, so although it's fictional, there is these kind of famous songs juxtapositioned with some famous nasty news moments. So, and I found that really interesting that Giles, you know, before we were talking about living for the future, Giles, the neighbor, he says once or twice, oh, I don't want, I don't want to know about that. And I don't want to interfere with that. And what's actually happening is on the news, there's the footage of the riots um, or there's the, uh, in the pie shop, there's the man that kind of goes off at the African-American and he, he doesn't want to get involved. You know, he wants to stay on the outside of that. And so there's that juxtaposition going on. Everything is water, right? So the coloring, the objects, the um, signs literally in the film have some sort of connection to it. So we have mentioned some of these things, but, you know, she's into the bath, the water in the bath. Um, she has a duck shoe brush. She polishes shoes, but it's a duck, you know, like ducks are around water. <laughs> um, the color of the car, the uniform color as well, a teal. Um, it rains a lot. You know, there's all the rains, um, even in the women's bathroom. Now it connects to the setting here. This is where this is really good production design. There's a propaganda poster that says loose lips sink ships, right? Because they're in a research facility, meaning... Don't talk about the research, but it's ships. It's it's water, you know. Um, the pie itself, the the pecan pie, is the greeny kind of key color. Lime. Key lime pie. Key lime pie. That's not, not pecan. What did I say? Pecan. Yeah, key lime makes so much more. So pecan would be brown. <laughs> um, you know, and there's the canal, and when she's on the bus, it's raining, and you know, like there's just she, they're surrounded by water. I, of Robert McKee, the writing teacher, talks a lot about the French film Diabolique, which is kind of a murder film. And in that, the water theme is throughout. I think this film probably stands up with that. Like, there is so much water motif. See if you can spot some others and let me know. Um, and then, like we talked about before, sorry, there's the future motive. So there's the signs of the future. There's the speaking of the future. The characters are kind of, are they living in the future versus living in the past? Um, there's the signs on the side of the road. There's the military plans. There's so much that's kind of like the future is coming, isn't there? Uh, it's all there. Um, the underhanded ra discrimination, racism, sexism, homophobia, it's all sort of there, which is like what happened versus then also outright versions of these. You know, we see the colonel, he kind of, at one moment, he sexually harasses the main character, doesn't he? And Oh, that's, yeah, he's gross. He's really gross with that. You know, like he's already been gross. We've seen him be gross. but And it kind of distracts him from the fact that she is the one that's gotten stolen the amphibian man. But he's like, you know, he's into, he, he's interested in her because she can't talk. And he says, I can bet you I can make you squawk, you know, and it's like, oh, it's really, really gross. And the world is quite quirky. You know, like we said, there's a guy on the bus with a half-eaten cake and balloons, but it's there. You know, the cinema, you know, the cinema itself is very quirky. That guy, it's like when you mentioned the scene where they flood the bathroom, we come down, don't we, an aerial shot onto a guy that's asleep with a bag of popcorn and the water goes in his mouth and he like hops up and like hops out of the cinema like it's great. Uh, it's a very quirky world, but yet it feels like reality. It's 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 weird, it, and it, that to me is sort of the definition of a painting. Um, there's also a lot of cin cinematic movement, meaning that the camera is moving a lot. Uh, so we're not static camera work; we're kind of slowly 
creeping in on people, we're rolling, we're dollying around the place. Um, there's a lot, a lot of movement uh, in this film. It's actually pretty intense, actually, the, the amount of movement, but not point of view, not shaky. It's all very, very smooth. And the editing itself, I think I picked this more up on this second viewing, but scenes really do end on cuts on action which is very normal but there's sound cutting going on so we've kind of got sound rolling from one scene to the next and and that almost happens i think every scene like i really noticed it in this second viewing so if you're out there and you're watching at home is there some scenes where it doesn't cut on the sound so like for example you know someone might open a box and then in the next scene there's like a box closing or a trolley is rolling in one scene so you got the sound of like the wheels and then that gets cut with that sound and the the wheels are now like a car sound or something so it's like the sound just keeps continuing or you know a door opens and slams shut and in the next scene the character is like slamming a door shut to start the scene the opening image we see a uh camera panning or, or moving through water it first of all it looks like we're at the bottom of a lake or something but then we see strange lights and we go in it and my little notes sort of say that it's a, a flooded street and as oh no flooded building and it's sort of this mysterious playful music so it's it looks like a it could have been a spooky scene but the music was peaceful it was it was playful and then we had this nice little voiceover which we find out is Giles but he is um sort of almost telling a fairy tale this this gave me the feeling of uh like a tim burton film like edward scissorhands but without the tim burton goth aesthetic you know and it, there was a uh a line in the voiceover that i picked up on i quite liked which is the story of the princess without a voice and the monster who tried to destroy it all which uh, I, su I suppose you could naively think that maybe that's talking about the merman being the monster, but we all know it's not going to be the merman, it's going to be a human, because whenever you have a monster film, it's always humans who are the real monsters. So this leads anyway into the catalyst, which to me in this film is, you know, um, Elisa, curious about the creature, kind of goes into the lab by herself and... You know, he there's that upright bit of the tank, and she sort of walks up to it, and we, and he comes towards her. So they have that first interaction. To me, that would be the catalyst. I, I found it interesting this film when we're talking about these beats because it's almost in some ways that there are three stories with their own slightly different beats in this, and certainly I think you know when the creature tank is wheeled in and Eliza sort of sees it and gets curious that's kind of the start of her catalyst yeah as you said and but then when the uh Strickland gets his fingers bitten off and comes running out that's almost like his catalyst to change yeah. because now he's like he's been one-upped by this creature and he's got to um you know try to overcome the creature like that's his antagonist to his protagonist of his story yes and it i see this i saw this a few other times in, uh in this in the act two and act three where the midpoint and uh like the bad guys move in happen to a couple of the characters so it's not just 
uh, Eliza and the fish boy. It's actually also um, Dimitri and Strickland both have their own uh, midpoints and bad guys move in and Dark Knight of the Soul. Yeah. Uh, and I, I found that a very interesting way of doing this. And I think that does play into that um, fairy tale, uh, what do you call it, mode of, of storytelling here where you have the three little pigs each build a house or you have um, the, the three bears or the three billy goats gruff. You know, there's three is one of these magical numbers in any given fairy tale and you'll often find that someone will try to do something three times or they've got to complete, they, you know, they get granted three wishes or whatever it is. And in this story, we have these three point, points of view around uh-huh. the story. I yeah. <laughs> yeah, well, I, I almost, see, it's interesting you're saying that because I almost could find, especially in this second viewing, that the way that we do break down the beats, you could almost argue it's Strickland who goes on this journey. Mm. So he doesn't, at the end of it, he doesn't win. Like he, he loses, he dies. But it's almost like the bad guy's closing in. The midpoint of this film for him is almost like the amphibian man is taken away. His car is destroyed. <laughs> he's kind of really, you know, and then he's given 32 hours or something to fix. Otherwise he's going to lose his job. Like it's almost like he's, not the he is the bad guy but it's almost like he's not the bad guy like it's almost like he's the protagonist of his story whereas actually for um uh Espadado, she's at that especially in the midpoint onwards it's almost like well it's not so much the bad guy's closing in she sort of more has a clear goal and she has to look after him and so it kind of did take me a little bit to decipher those beats i ended up more going no no i can see the beats for her but i agree with you that there's more going on that these beats almost roll to every single character. But maybe this film is showing us that that's what you need to have a bit more is you need to have the beats for all the characters. Yeah, and because Dimitri, of course, he he has that moment where he sees that Eliza is having a communication with this creature. It's not just an idiot. Yeah. Not like it's a monster that happens to look, you know, like it's not like, um, you know, a, a monkey that looks sort of humanoid, but it's it's you know, it's kind of a bit of an animal, really. Uh, that's sort of his catalyst. And he has a, a midpoint there where um, he's then told to kill it. You know, so it's all looking good. Yes, okay, the, 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 they want to do the research, we should take it. And then it's the midpoint is, no, it's too hard. You're going to have to kill it. Like that's suddenly his, you know, research and his infiltration of this base has suddenly turned sour. Yes. Yeah, so. <laughs> anyway, so what, yeah. what what's some of the things in the debate? So for me, <clears throat> I agree. So there's sort of like almost multiple narrative arcs going on here, quite deep for all those key characters. Some of the debate things I was seeing is that um, for Eliza it's, well, no, this amphibian man is very dangerous. You know, so for her it's like if you continue to see this creature, don't, don't trust it, you know, and, and with that we have the Strickland loses his fingers, you know, so it really ups the ante that, oh, this thing in there is not just a play toy. <laughs> you know, she's gone in there previously and kind of signaled with it, but this thing has the ability to rip, rip your fingers off, you know. Um, so to me that was kind of part of the debate there is like, is this creature actually safe or is it like a vicious creature? 
Um, so then she starts beginning to visit him more and pushing that. And we have that nice little moment of feeding the eggs. Um, at the same time, the doctor at this point in time, he kind of wants to experiment. Um, and then really, really rapidly Strickland wants to then after kind of getting his fingers back on and stuff, he wants to dissect him straight away. You know, he wants to get rid of him. Uh, but as we know, we, with him, it's also about getting out of this lab and getting out of this town, like it, because he doesn't want to be in the present, does he? Which is going back to that theme. Yeah. His, his, uh, greatness is in the future somewhere. Yeah. So breaking the two, two, the sort of fork to me is that she does feed him and they do do the sign language more proactively um, and they have that bond. So to me, that kind of like once she got, she got past the fact that thinking, okay, no, she's going to persevere with this um, and she feeds him the eggs and gives the sign language and he kind of comes back and so that actually drives it in. So into act two. Now the thing separate to that the b story to me is more the neighbor so like giles so he loves the guy at the pie shop you know and so we yeah. start taking this journey that giles is an artist um, but he's probably a gay man and he's in love with the guy at the pie shop so that's kind of the and we have that scene he's he's bought pie for her and him Sorry, it's, it's not, not very good. Yeah, and it's not very good. No. <laughs> and he's, he's got he's 18... We'll, we'll have it later. And he puts it in the fridge with all the other key lime pie that clearly he still doesn't like. That's right. He's got a whole bunch of pie that he doesn't actually like. No, and, and I think that is also a bit of a... It's one of those uh, allusions to his life. Yeah. Is that he keeps taking a bite of these things that are supposed to be good, but they're not good for him. Yeah, that's right. So it's a good setup of his, like a bee story, a, a separate story, yeah. The fun and games is quite interesting in this one as well, I think, because, again, we sort of get multiple views of this fun and games. Yeah. Uh, the escaping the facility is uh, very quick, you know, in it would have been easy to have had that as be, um, you know, third act is enacting the escape plan but see that the escape plan isn't the point of this film uh, so instead we we start seeing like the cooking lots of eggs you know and and playing music sharing her favorite music and then you know dancing for the fishy and then uh then we see dimitri of course we discover that he is a spy yeah and that he has he's sympathetic to the creature and he's like um trying to maneuver around the other Americans there. And, of course, Moscow rejects Dimitri. Yeah, and the, and at the same time we have then this General Hoyt rocks up and saying, well, you know, I'm happy to listen to all the ideas, but at the end of the day it's my decision, you know. And so, you know, you can pitch to me the science value, but at the end of the day you know, we need to get the man on the moon and stuff the Soviets sort of thing, so to speak. Yes, and, you know, fishmen will do that apparently. Apparently so. So I think at the midpoint, uh, it's kind of the escape of the facility. That That's where the security guys, you know, Strickland's life takes a turn. It's where Dimitri has to commit and likewise his life becomes more dangerous and it's where... Um, 
we leave it leave the facility it seems good for Eliza like you could say that's kind of a good thing because it, it enhances or expands their relationship but we do also then start getting the the downside of the fact that you've got an amphibian in your bathtub yeah well I think it's like what we said before it's a it's a good example of a bit of a false victory because they've saved him from the military for the meanwhile, but then the military are going to try to hunt him down and find him. Strickland's going to try to find him. Um, so they're still on their tail, but they have got him out of the facility, meaning that now she can have more intimate moment with him. But they're still also got to get him back to the ocean or the river, right? So it's like, yeah, it's a bit of a, it's actually probably a really good example of like a false victory. So it's a victory, but not quite, you know, you haven't won the championship, so to speak. Yeah, and we also we see uh, maybe it's a little bit more fun and games, which I found a bit strange here, where the old fish boy eats the cat and yeah. runs away. And, yeah, that sort of – that didn't go the way maybe you would expect it to go at this point after the midpoint, which would be where that becomes uh, a difficulty. Now he's lost in the city, you know, and something's going to happen. He's being – bad guys are closing in and people are going to find him and he's running out of oxygen or whatever it is he needs. Yeah. That weird stuff. But instead, they sort of get him back and it's almost like a bit of a, just a little reminder to sort of say he doesn't belong here. I think that's that's the bad guy moves in part of that is uh, he's out of his element. He doesn't belong in a city. He'll eat cats. He'll get confused and frightened and he's got claws for goodness sakes. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, it's the old Encino Man thing, isn't it? Which, which is more fun in games, you know? It's the it's the bringing something weird into the environment and stuff. But, yeah, this is after, definitely after the midpoint. And, um, yeah, the interesting thing there is he has a moment with Giles because when he did eat the cat and run away, he, he scratched him. And when he has this moment with Giles, they kind of touch each other's heads and he actually glows. We haven't seen him glow before, but he has these kind of sparkly, you know, diamond glow all over him. And Giles kind of jokes it off. He goes, oh, it's probably not very sanitary. But then the next day he wakes up and, I mean, it's not completely obvious, but he's actually got a bit more hair and his arm is healed. So it's as though the creature has actually kind of like got some sort of healing power. Well, they revered him as a god, yeah. as it says. Yeah, we get a couple of time clocks as well introduced. Yep. 48 hours for Dimitri's extraction, 36 hours for Strickland. Yep. And then we have the, you know, oh, I can't remember what the date was, the 10th. Yep. 10th of that something, oh, 10th of something. December? Something, <laughs> something like that, when the rains will come. But, yeah, so everyone has this time clock now and we also sort of see that he's losing some of his scales. He's clearly suffering from not having an appropriate environment. Yeah, but with that, Alyssa, which you detailed before, floods the bathroom and they have their very intimate relationship moment, don't they? And They basically already do it once and then she does it again with flooding the bathroom. And that flooding the bathroom scene is fantastic, as you were talking about before. It's extremely romantic, um, even though it's, you know, bestiality, so to speak, but... They kind of break the barriers down by the fact she floods the bathroom. And I love that idea, as I said before, the water trickles down into the cinema below, the empty cinema bar of a couple of people. And 
Um, you know, the landlord gets pissed off and when Giles runs in, he kind of opens the door and the whole apartment's flooded, but then he just closes it on him because he realises that they're having an intimate moment, you know. Um, so I thought that was a really, yeah, really beautiful scene that. Um, they, they stripped away the bathroom and it became them dancing, you know, dancing in the water, didn't it? And interesting also in that those sorts of scenes... Uh, was still happening while we then had the, you know, this this death and inspiration turn towards the end of Act Two, which is, I think, is um, yeah, where they, the fishman is definitely dying. Like he's bleeding out his mouth a bit. He's not happy. And then we have security guy Strickland. His fingers have gone black and they stink. Yes. And yeah, and then uh, Dimitri is shot by Strickland. Yeah. Uh, and did you see he got shot through the mouth and you know Guillermo's not afraid of a bit of gore here and Strickland hooks him like a fish in yeah. the mouth <laughs> and drags him out through the you know out from under where he's into the rain yeah again uh, it's raining it's raining yeah where he gives up the cleaners but of course they assume there must have been a you know a, an elite strike squad of at least 10 men and yeah Dimitri has a bit of a chuckle and goes no uh, they don't have names or ranks. They they just clean up. Yeah, and that and that brings, of course, that's Strickland's sudden inspiration. Is like you know his his fingers. He lost his fingers, and yeah, I think he ends up when he goes and confronts Zelda. He actually rips his fingers off. Yeah, he rips them off. Chucks them on the floor, and we see them bounce. And one of them goes under the television. Uh, it's it's quite graphic, but yeah, that's sort of the you know he's gathering his forces. His fingers are gone now. He doesn't have to worry about them because he's choosing Act 3. And in turn, of course, Zelda having Strickland break into a home and, like, threaten her like that and her husband being a little bit useless. And, yeah, fair enough. I mean, Strickland's a scary guy. But yeah, well, I think he's a, that he's... was sort of her turning point for, for like, okay, now I've, I've got to move on to Act 3. So it's... Yeah, and that uh, that yeah. was one of those nice moments that yeah, the husband's useless, which Zelda had sort of joked about before, but it's also the black man versus the white man, right? Like there's there's a bit of, I think we can't stand up to the military white man either, you know? And um, no, there's there's nothing that he could have done because no. had he had he punched the guy out, like that's it, he would have been you know, taken out. Yeah. So there's sort of, it's again, it's very underhanded, you know, like he, yeah. But anyway, it's great. And I think it's also, to me, that's what I was, we were talking about before, that if you take Strickland's narrative arc, it's very clear, like he's been given a time clock. If he doesn't sort out this mess, he's gone. He's going to lose his career. Um, he's losing his fingers to the point where he rips them off. And then he's also tried to solve the crime and got the wrong people so to speak you know and so it, it it to me it was really heading like strickland this is strickland's three-act structure almost you know yeah but at the same time eliza is also you know dealing with loving this amphibian creature falling in love with him giving him everything rescuing him taking him back to her place you know the further consummating the relationship but then he's dying knowing that we have to get him to the river whilst the bad guys kind of do close in on her, you know? And in this case, Zelda says Strickland's coming, so they take off. And this really gets us into, you know, going into pushing into the third act. And um, she takes them down to the canals with Giles. 
and um and she tries to say goodbye to him like this yeah. is you know we had the first action uh reversal and and part of that is she's trying to say goodbye and strickland turns up and shoots everyone <laughs> <laughs> knocks giles aside and and shoots uh fish man and i wish, I wish she had a name other than just fishy I just keep referring to him as fishy or fish boy or fish face in my notes. Yeah. And shoots Eliza. And, yeah, so this is a bit of a, a reversal here where you go, oh, my goodness. Except what we discover also, as we said, is this is actually Strickland's first action. So he's going to get a reversal. Yes. Uh, where, you know, he thinks he's won. And then, of course, uh, the fish man is like a god. Does he mention, Strickland mentioned that here, like... Yeah, no. yeah, he does because the fish guy, like he, he glows and he just stands up and wipes the wounds away. Yeah, he's he heals, trying yeah. to reload. Yeah, he heals himself instantly, basically. Yeah, and Strickland's trying to reload quickly, and I think it, this fish guy stands in front of him and he says, "Oh, well, maybe you are a god." And mm. it's like it's like Strickland has recognized defeat that Strickland is not does not have the power. Yeah. It does not because the fishman has the you know uh, love of a woman. The fishman has the confidence and poise. It just is, whereas Strickland is not. He doesn't have this proper respect. He doesn't have himself present. He has his things. He's got a gun. He's got his prod. He's got his car. He's got his um, family even, and none of those things demonstrate any sort of power. Fish guy just sort of wipes off a couple of bullets, walks up to Strickland, and Strickland goes, yeah, okay. Maybe you are a god. <laughs> yeah. And, and then, with that, uh, he just rips his face off, doesn't he, basically? It's none too good. And I, th- I think Giles whacks Strickland in the back of the head. And, uh, yeah, they no, he, off and Strickland, jump in the water. No, he, the fish man just rips his head off, basically, like slashes his throat kind of thing. Oh, yes. There we yep. go. And I, I, Actually, I've got the quote here. Strickland says, fuck, you are a god. Ah, there you go. Just before he gets <laughs> slaughtered. Slaughtered, yeah. No, he's and slaughtered. Then, Put, it puts an end to him. That's the other thing, you know. Like, he kind of has to die, doesn't he? Yeah, it's... Because otherwise uh, he... Yeah, in a, in a way, he was already dead. He was a walking yeah. dead character. Like. Yeah. And also, because then as, as a story, he might keep hunting them after this, you know, whereas others would probably just let it go. Yeah. Uh, his entire self-worth would be tied up. Yeah. So they jump into the water, the fishman and, and Elisa, just as all the authorities rock up. So Giles is kind of okay. And this is, to me, a nice little twist on the whole story is that um, when he jumps, when they're in the water, you sort of think, oh, he's probably just going to go up and kiss her and she'll start breathing. But he goes up and he actually opens up the wounds on her neck. And it's those wounds on her neck from when she had a voice box cut out as a kid and the reason why she can't speak and then he turns them into gills yeah and I mean, she I, I picked that of course at the very the very first of my in act one i've got a little note there saying oh eliza has or had gills yeah <laughs> because it's they it's look like it. set up for it but it's nice to see it happen and so then we have this bookend of giles repeating you you sort of said at the start the you know the start of a fairy tale and he says oh well I'd like to say they happily are lived after, but maybe instead of that, we should say they remained in love. So he kind yes. of puts it in a bit of a different, maybe adult version of of a fairy tale. The bookend of the opening is that 
the two of them are in each other's arms, whereas in the start, Eliza just lying, sleeping by herself. Yeah, and instead of being in an apartment, she's that's flooded, so to speak, in maybe dream world, she is now in the water. Mm, in a canal. Yeah. <laughs> okay, and that brings us to the end of the plot. So we like to put these films on a ladder, not so much maybe a ladder of watching it, uh, sorry, not a ladder of importance or, you know, one is better than the other, but just as in a viewing ladder. So for me, The Shape of Water, I'm actually sort of putting it higher up the rungs of my ladder. For example, I have Oblivion as my top rung, followed by The Lobster, and then I think you should have a look at The Shape of Water, and then that would be followed by Snowpiercer. I think that'd be a nice little trilogy. Lobster's quite quirky, weird, futuristic. This, if you then went from that and then you went into Shape of Water, you'd sort of be going back in time, you know, as we talked about a lot of these undercurrent themes of a moment in sort of society uh, and also creature kind of sci-fi, those those old scientists that we talked about earlier. And then if you jump into something like Snowpiercer where it's like dystopian future, I think that would be a very interesting little trilogy of sci-fi. How about yourself, sorry? Yeah, I liked I liked this film very much and I think it's got a very strong sort of theme and feeling to it and I wanted to put that against another film. So down the bottom of uh, like at number 57 I've got Edge of Tomorrow that like that's the bookend. I've got Oblivion at <coughs> pardon me at one end and Edge of Tomorrow at the other. And then Space Between Us and which is about the the boy born on Mars and then the shape of water. So you you get it's quite a a different different take on the love stories, two of them one after the other, mm. so that you can, I like to have these contrasts in these. So it's the same theme of romance and um, separation, not being able to connect. But Definitely. Sounds good. Sort of different approaches to that. Sounds fantastic. So what did you think about our suggestions on the ladder versus your own ladder? Are you following along at home? If so, share your ladders. Right, are we wrong? Would you order this up higher? Would you order it down lower? Would you compose it against one of our other films? Go for it. Let us know what you think about it. Okay, so let's get into a bit of science behind this film. What what kind of science do you want to dissect, <laughs> sorry, from well, The Shape of Water? Well, I'll tell you what's really interesting about the time period. So The Shape of Water, I think, is nominally 62 1962. Yeah, I think there's uh, reference to 62, isn't there, at some point? Yeah, so having a bit of a think about this, and they kept talking about, you know, the space program and so on, and it got me thinking about C-Lab uh, and the, sort of the history behind that. And we had this fellow, George Foot Bond, also known as Papa Topside. For, <laughs> sounds a little bit, you know, yeah. whoa. But really it's because he was uh, a diver. Right. So he was, he was a, in the Navy in 1953, uh, diving a submarine medical officer, uh, and he, he moved to the Naval Medical Research Laboratory, and he was um, conducting experiments in saturation diving. And saturation diving is the sort of diving that you do when you go down deep sea. Uh, normally when you do a bit of scuba, you're sort of in the top 10, 20 metres of water sort yep. of thing. Saturation diving is more when you're going down 100 metres mm. uh, or further. Right. So at the bottom of oil rigs 
or you're doing uh, marine recovery missions where a, a submarine has crashed and you need to get down there, uh, you need to repair something, whatever. And so it takes, you know, it takes a certain amount of time for a diver to swim down and swim back up. Yep. And of course, as you go down, you start, you get pressurized and you start uh, having nitrogen dissolve into your blood. And then when you come back up, they will form bubbles and kill you. They're mm. called the bends. So, so there are limits to ordinary scuba diving. So saturation diving is where you stick someone in pressure, you give them a, a mixture of gases to breathe, and you pressurize them so that they become saturated with the inert gases like nitrogen, helium, whatever it is, in their blood, in their soft tissues, and they're breathing pressurized gas right. at the same sort of pressure of the water that you're going to stick them in. And that way they stay down underwater, like in a habitat for a, you know, a diving bell type thing or a hyperbaric chambery type thing, uh, where they can go out, do their work, come back in, eat, sleep, uh, and repeat for several days. Uh, which means that, you know, you can actually get some real work done deep under the water. But of course, that was not a thing up until this guy, Mr. Bond, George Bond. So in the 60s, the early 60s, he instigated this thing called Project Genesis, which don't you love these old names of the projects? I do. To choose these things. So, so that, that's that in 1957 where he was looking at, you know, how do human bodies, how do bodies respond to breathing different gases at different pressures? Because the question you have to ask is, you know, if you at uh, you know sea level, roughly speaking, normal atmospheric pressure, we we breathe about let's call it twenty percent oxygen, and most of the rest of it is sort of nitrogen, uh, and you know there's there's some other bits and pieces in there, but it's not important. So how would we respond though if we put that pressurized? If we had to breathe it under pressure, or if we had to um, breathe different gases? So we started off with a bunch of rats. Uh -huh. which just the normal lab rats. And he put them down uh, to the equivalent depth of about 200 feet below sea level, which is, I don't know, it's about 100 meters. Yeah. No, 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 no more like about 80 meters or so. Uh, and held them down there for, let's say, 35 hours, 14 days, 16 days, that sort of time period. They found that after 35 hours at 200 feet, just breathing normal air, uh, all the rats died <laughs> yeah, due to... Uh, oxygen toxicity, which is, it comes from breathing too much pure oxygen. Uh, right. It's quite damaging, it turns out. But they discovered that you can't just breathe normal air down there. So then they stuck some with more oxygen, uh, at, you know, and it turns out, yeah, they died even faster. Isn't that cool? So then they tried a few mixes of, you know, 3% oxygen and with 97% hydrogen, 20% oxygen, some helium, 3% oxygen and helium, and so forth, at mm. different depths and so on. But they found that oxygen and helium uh, was quite good. It seemed to work the best down to the deepest for the longest. Right. So finally, they ended up with some goats and squirrel monkeys as well. Uh, they all survived, so they were fine. Oh, thank God. <laughs> yes, thank goodness me. You see... They were going to scrap this process. They're going to say, well, it's not too interesting. But in 1962, 
interest as 1962, yeah, trying to find out, get people in a space to the moon. They've got this seaman in uh, this fishman who breathes water and air. Uh, and that's significant because water has much less oxygen in it than does air. And so the requirements of your lungs compared to gills are very different. But in 1962, there's a lot of interest in the helium oxygen atmospheres for manned space flights. Yeah, right. And so George said, oh, you know what? I know how we can test the effects of this. We can stick a bunch of people underwater and give them helium oxygen. And so they did phase C of mm. Operation Genesis, which is where they got three subjects at one atmosphere, that's normal atmospheric pressure, because they, they didn't want to you know, accidentally kill these guys. So they chucked him in some oxygen uh, and mostly helium uh, for six days. Right. And they found this, there was some difficulty. So one of the problems is that the density of helium is different. So that means uh, you lose heat, body heat, a lot faster, and you also have trouble understanding their talk. You can well imagine what it sounds like when you've got a bunch of people for six days breathing huge amounts of helium. They were all talking like chipmunks, and <laughs> it, it made life a bit difficult. But all of the, what all of this meant was they got finally go out to do this C-Lab, and C-Lab is a fabulous series of underwater experimental... Uh, habitats which look like glorified I don't know tubes with the ends covered off they, they weren't very imaginative in their designs here that's just really just a a cylinder with the ends capped and they stuck them in so that's 1964 they finally lowered sea lab uh, they dropped it about 60 meters below the water uh-huh. and uh, they they conducted a whole bunch of experiments they had to bring it up though because there was going to be a, um, a, a storm. And they brought it up, and you can still go see Sea Lab. It's sitting in the Museum of Man in the Sea in Panama City. Right. It's been restored for, for viewing. There was a Sea Lab 2, which went down in 1965. They went down to 62 meters, uh, and they had their, some improvements. So they increased the, they put in a heater because you know, who, who knew they'd need a heater? But they had to keep the ambient temperature about 30 degrees centigrade because they got so cold in the helium. Right. And they also then had some showers and and a bottlenose dolphin called Tuffy who would, they would sort of training as part of their, you know, try and get dolphins to help the Navy. Put lasers yeah. on the dolphins idea. Yeah, it was, it was mainly they're looking at, you know, using them to transport materials to submarines and deep sea dives because dolphins can transition from you know they can go down to 62 meters without much trouble they've got different physiology to us a sea lab three got a bit of trouble because of the vietnam war uh, they did manage to get it down but uh, there was all sorts of problems and it cost too much money and it was it went on and on but some of the things they discovered so what did they discover about people because yeah, they obviously discovered new life and new creatures. They were able to, you know, see what the sediment floor was like and so on. But one of the main things they're looking to do is find out how all this affected people. And so, you know, one of the things, of course, is people got rashes a lot because uh, they were constantly in and out of wetsuits. Uh, they were, you know, wet. They were being their skin was being rubbed. The chamber tended to be a bit humid and warm uh, when you're under there uh, you, you also then have some problems much like air, air travel 
your taste and your hunger alters. Your sense of taste diminishes. And it seems that uh, the only thing that these aquanauts could do, much like the astronauts, is just put hot sauce on everything. <laughs> because they just couldn't taste things properly. They also had to eat a lot because they were, first of all, they were burning a lot of energy just to keep warm. But then they're also going swimming a lot. Yeah. Uh, you know, that they, they all the experimentation required them to go out swimming, which is just really difficult. And so they ate double what you'd normally otherwise eat. And they didn't want to. difficult eat. because if you're underwater for two weeks or 30 days, there's, you know, only so many foods that you can have down there and they couldn't cook anything because uh, they didn't want to have a fire and you know in fact it was difficult to have a fire in or, or anything too hot down there because of the atmosphere it was all wrong so they they tended to get um you know these uh, chemical heaters and stuff the meals ready to eat there's military ration packs and it's basically not very nice mm. uh, another one though was sleeping Everyone slept really well because, first of all, they were exhausted and, secondly, the, um, they were deep underwater so they didn't have a lot of noises. They sort of had the occasional creaks and little hisses of the air vents and so forth, but they, they said that it was just really easy to sleep mm. under there. Maybe also slightly lower oxygen levels, uh, except for one aquanaut. There's a photographer called Kip Evans. He complained that there were these silver fish they kept swimming near his bedroom porthole and reflecting the outside lights into his eyes. And he, he complained about that. Which, okay, fine. Speaking, because it's all helium, they could, it turns out they could understand each other reasonably well because it seems that the brain adjusts to the high pitch voices and so they could talk. But when they're trying to talk to people above the surface using like telephones and so on, it's essentially impossible for the people on the surface to understand their high-pitched, rapid speech. It was um, a problem. I, I'm wondering if they actually, it doesn't, I, I couldn't find anywhere to say it specifically. I'm wondering if they would record it and slow them down to lower the pitch. <laughs> yeah, it would make a lot of uh, sense. Toilets were also quite difficult because they just sort of had like a little, little hut outside the habitat that'd swim out and go to the toilet in. But all the fish learnt that there was feeding time when these people, it's, <laughs> it's quite grotesque really, but the fish would come and eat the poo. Yep. Some of the fish would get a little bit enthusiastic and would give people little nips. So they had to set up a special air bubble curtain that would like shoot compressed air into the water to keep the fish away. So you didn't get little nips on your private bits. Mm. So it, anyway, it was pretty interesting. There's a whole bunch of other things fun. that they looked there at, um, you know, your thinking, your psychological stability, your isolation and boredom, mm -hmm. and, you know, what sort of limits you had. Yeah. And a lot of this has gone into this uh, science fiction notion of having underwater cities. Yeah. And much like, uh, I suppose it's much like having, you know, a moon colony. It's, it turns out it's really impractical and difficult to have an underwater city. Yeah. Because these habitats they had, you know, they reckon you could get them a bit bigger, which make them a little bit more comfortable, but maintaining the air quality is quite difficult because you're in a sealed system and it's also then um once you get above a certain population how do you evacuate people in the case of an emergency you know if if there's a bit of a breach how do you evacuate because you need to decompress on the way back up otherwise you all die when you get to the surface yeah in terrible fashion 
Uh, and then there's food problems. How do you grow food? There's no natural sunlight. You'd have to use artificial light. Same sort of problems you get like trying to live on the moon. You know, like the, the atmosphere is just hostile and you'd only do it if the alternative was worse. Yeah. So I, and I, I thought it was pretty interesting that all of this kicked off 1962. It was all uh, underwater living and different breathing. And this movie was set at, the, at that same sort of time where all of this research into underwater living was going yeah. on. I don't know. I don't know if Guillermo particularly chose that time for that reason or if that's just convenient or coincidental that there was a lot of research going on at that time. Um, so I think if Guillermo wants to get in contact with us and enlighten us, uh, that would be awesome. Or, or his co-writer there, Vanessa. But I have to ask anyone listening to this, if you could live in an underwater habitat, do you think you'd be happy doing so? <laughs> like, And I, I don't mean like visit it for a couple of days to say, oh, this is interesting, but, you know, you're going to rent an apartment in an underwater habitat and go to work down there and, and live there for maybe a couple of years. Because personally, it sounds like a horror story waiting to happen. <laughs> it was definitely one of those things that when I was a kid and you saw those things and, you know, even in Where's Wally, I'm sure there's probably an underwater world and, you know, probably there was, I'm just trying to remember like a film or, you know, parts of these sort of ideas or little stories probably based on this guy from the 60s. You know, it sounds cool, doesn't it? It sounds really cool as a kid. But then when you start to think about the practicality, it, it is like a horror movie, really. Yeah, it's, it's one of those things where you'd have to have, I suppose if you had a large enough habitat, and it's the same with like living on the moon or the Mars, if you had a large enough habitat that it was, it felt open, like, yeah, uh, you know, so that you had trees and houses inside a big dome, which is because that's the way they portray it, isn't it? Like this big yeah. domed city and inside the city looks just like, you know, there's parks and there's houses and there's farmland and yeah. stuff. totally different, uh, it, yeah. It never really explains how the sunlight gets in there, but, you know, nonetheless, like that would probably be okay. Yeah, that would be fine, but, wouldn't it? Because <laughs> that's just pretty much what we live in now. It's just plonked in the ocean. Yeah. yeah, in reality, it's, just, it's these little tiny hubs, cohabs, and even that stuff that you were talking about. Oh, you have to go outside to do a, a poo, and then the fish are going to eat your poo butthole while you poo. <laughs> that was never in the stories when I was a kid. No, it's sort of one of those details they gloss over, don't they? It's the yeah. whole going to the toilet bit. They That's never right. really explained how uh, the fish man went to the toilet in this movie. No, no. Or they just did it in the bathtub. <laughs> <laughs> That's right. <laughs> He just oh, probably you did. could imagine Eliza going, oh, for goodness sakes, I told you not to do it in the yeah, bath. There's a toilet. I've got to, clean, got to change the water again now. That's it. All right, well, that, that's really interesting science anyway, this idea of being underwater and, you know, the capacity that we have as humans. And, yeah, you're right, there's a lot of connection to living on Mars or living in the moon, living on the moon, sorry, not in the moon. So well, if you're out there... I know that they are talking about building underground bases, so in the moon is probably true. Okay, well, there we go. All right, well, that brings us to the end of this episode, talking about The Shape of Water. Let us know what you thought about uh, the film. Uh, hopefully you went and saw it. I'd well recommend watching this film. It's really an entertaining, moving masterpiece of cinema storytelling. Go check and it out. I Let really, us know. I really loved, actually, like we described, it follows a three-act structure, but not, not uh, slavishly 
do one character through a story, it's it's good to show that there's different interpretations like this. Definitely. That you don't, yeah, you, you, you can move beyond the, what might seem to be confining bounds. Yeah, well and truly. Yeah, and that same but different thing that we talked about as well, that I could see some similarities in this film to E.T., but I don't think that was the homogene that he was doing, but I, I just mean from a narrative point of view, there's definitely those beats. Mm. And without going through it on a fine-tooth comb, I can definitely see some connect. So what's our next film for next week's episode, sorry? Next week we're going to be going back in time mm. and we're going to be revisiting one of our um, previous, I suppose, favourite scriptwriters, John Sayles. Mm. We've got The Battle Beyond the Stars. Mm. So this was... Uh, Back when Star Wars was making such a splash, everyone wanted to have their big space opera epic. And this is one is quite memorable. <laughs> uh, I'm pretty sure I have seen it, like when I was really little or something. Yeah. But I'm, I'm keen to watch it again. It's available. Google it. You can rent it. It costs like a couple of bucks or whatever it is. Yeah. Uh, maybe you find it in an op shop. Probably not because it's probably a little bit too vintage now. It's like 1970 or something. Yep. 1980, around that vintage. You know, like it's Star Warsy time. Yeah, frame. yeah. So go check it out. You'll find it online somewhere. And uh, we will be talking about next week can't, or next episode, sorry. Can't wait to get my sticky chops around that one. Please think about giving us a five-star rating or writing a review on whichever podcast service you are listening to us on if it's apple it's spotify or all the other ones that are out there give us a bit of a tick or a box or a star or a, i don't know subscribe follow something uh, and you can also find us on spacebrains.com twitter instagram tiktok spacebrains.com.au yep yep um and the festival you will find we've got a new website but you can also find it through the plethora of other websites that are out there and also our social media. So go check it out. And if you've got something that you'd like us to do or look at a particular film or want to sponsor us, hit us up. Send us uh, some feedback. We're talking to you, Guillermo. <laughs> All right, we'll catch you next time. That's bye for now. Bye. Ciao.